Hello and welcome to the Geeks at the Gate. A bonus episode for you this week. Was supposed to be posted yesterday, but the show notes took forever. So we're here now. And we're going to try and do this uh, semi-regularly throughout this time of lockdown. Our regular scheduled episodes will be coming out every Wednesday, as we always planned they would, right up until the point we run out. But we're also going to throw in some extra bonus content, because goodness knows we all need something to do. So, with that in mind, we are going to explore the other side of some of the geeks, and uh, just have a look at what else they do when they're not being massively geeky. Because we have ideas about what makes a geek and, you know, what a geek is into. But we're actually all surprisingly well-rounded people. And one of the things about being a geek is that you tend to be geeky about everything you love. But not everything you love is considered to be geeky. And those are the things we're going to explore, starting today with Hat, who is, and I don't think she'll mind me saying this, a massive, massive nerd. Dungeons and Dragons, comics, all kinds of stuff like that. But also, Hat is a very talented artist, and she's got a master's degree and everything. So I sat down across the internet from Hat and had her explain to me exactly what it is about art that's so damn great. So, what we're here to do is explore the other side of the geek. Because the thing about being a geek is that you're geeky about everything. But not everything you're into would normally be considered geeky. So, you know, I'm into Star Wars and Star Trek and... Discworld and D&D and comics and all that kind of stuff. I also like Jane Austen and cricket. Uh, and I'm geeky of both of them too. So, for this little series, I'm going to interview the geeks in turn, except for Steve, who denies any knowledge of anything that isn't geeky, uh, and find out what they're geeky about that isn't all that geeky. Uh, so, Hat, hello, welcome. Thank you for being guest number one. Hello. Uh, just for the listener's sake, if there are weird noises anywhere in the background, that will be an artefact of Skype. Uh, which is rapidly becoming not my favourite way to talk to people over the internet. But yeah, there we go. So uh, hopefully I'll edit them all out. But if you can hear them, that's it. Uh, if so, there are ones that you don't know what they are, they might be my dog. Well, there's that too. Uh, hello, Shane. Yes, she's currently sleeping. So, but if you hear some no, so tick tacking, so it's probably not her at the moment. Then not right now. <laughs> okay, but you know what she's like. Uh, so, hat, you are geeky about many things. Um, <laughs> so many Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> Animation, Spider-Man, stuff. What is your thing that you're massively geeky about that people don't consider to be geek? I think it's art, basically. I, um, If you add them all together, I spent around about eight years at art school. And so it's the big nerd thing that isn't a nerdy nerd thing that I do and read about and spend my time on um, when I'm not being a massive nerd, I guess. Okay. Now, see, I'm one of those people that doesn't know a lot about art, but I know what I like. That's like um, most people, to be fair. <laughs> and, yeah, I've got a little bit of knowledge. Um, my wife used to work for a major auction house that shall not be named because uh, they're dicks. Uh, but one of the perks of that was that, um, you know, I got to see some really 
impressive classic art. Uh, and I once had to go and pick up a major art critic from the station and then pay his hotel bill because he'd forgotten his credit card. True, Ooh, true story. No. No, no, true no. story. He was giving a lecture in Leeds at the, uh, at the Leeds Art Gallery. And he literally got on the train in King's Cross with nothing. Because, because he's quite a famous bloke. Yeah. Been on Channel mm. 4 and everything. But I can't tell the story, so there you are. No. Um, <sighs> what, I'm looking forward to being educated, basically, as I am sure are most of the audience. So um, apart, from those, apart from those two over there, they don't look interested, but, you know, to hell with them. So what's your, what's your background in art? Um, my background is I decided when I was 18 to um, give up on my dreams of being an actor and go to art college because that made sense. I was When I was 14, I was told under no circumstances whatsoever should I pursue art in any way, shape or form and definitely not to take it as a GCSE choice. So I didn't. Um, and then I did other things. And then when I was 18, I kind of, well, I was 17 actually because I have a very late birthday. Um, I kind of realized that yeah it wasn't going to work out for various and many reasons and I kind of I came back from I'd done like a load of auditions and everything and I'd been in National Youth Theatre and all that kind of stuff and I was like actually I love art art's amazing I'm really into it I, I went I remember like being much younger than that and going and seeing stuff at galleries with my dad at the Tate in Liverpool before it was the Tate and then when I went to National Youth Theatre actually it was when the Tate Modern had just opened and my friends and I all went down to see what was on and I vividly remember walking into one one of the wings, I can't remember which one it was, but uh, I remember standing in front of various artworks and just being so incredibly moved by the experience uh, that I couldn't see myself doing anything else after that point, really. Uh-huh. And um, it's funny because my friend remembers this. He's actually now, he's he's a doctor, but he's becoming a, well, he's actually a novelist as well. But he um, he remembers that that day as well when we went to the Tate and just had this incredible art experience. But yeah, I saw Picasso and um, a lot of Warhol. They had an amazing Warhol exhibition at the time, which just totally changed everything for me, I think. And uh, Dali, uh, Mountain Lake is incredible. So yeah, just some real real moments there and uh, Louise Bourgeois the the giant spiders I think that's what one of the modern art installations that a lot of people recognize I remember seeing that on the on the news and on you know sort of arts programs certainly yeah the sort of big giant spidery yeah they're incredible if you stand underneath you can't anymore but back then they didn't really care about health and safety um (laughs) (laughs) they just didn't it was like what uh was it 99 2000 ish it would have been a band then yeah yeah, and they just didn't care. They were like, oh, it's all good. Uh, don't worry about health and safety. Just just go stand underneath a giant metal spider. Uh, you'll be fine. So, yeah, I don't think you could do that now. But um, then we did, and it was incredible. It was an absolutely amazing experience to see them. They're just vast. Yeah, yeah. that's that's where it started. And then I, I went to art college. And then from there, I went to university to study interior design. And then I dropped out. Uh, and then I went back to art college. <laughs> to do applied design which is what my degree is in and then I did a a master's in um, creative practice after that so I have been uh, studying art for a really long time and my focus when I was actually making art regularly which of course day jobs etc was in conceptual art um, and installation work mostly and some very odd sculptures and stuff so yeah that's that's kind of where I where my practice sat when it was that form of practice. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, there's, my, there's, my, my, my background in art, that's, that's what I've done. And th- there's a story there, actually. Yeah. Um, or not, not so much a, 
well, there is a story there, but there's a, a message there for all the people who get told, don't do that, you know, good at it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. When I was, it's funny, actually, when I did my um, my art foundation, which is like B, that with BTEC Art Foundation, um, my art teacher from high school that told me never to take art actually came and I was just like, this is my work here. Um, I was oh, quite cocky been, when I was 19, must, but it was... <laughs> that must have been yeah. so much fun. It really was, actually. I was like, yep, yeah, that's my work. <laughs> Get, <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I like I like that, and no, it's interesting because, as I say, I don't know much about art, um, but I, I I do recognise the the feeling of standing in front of something and being blown away. Uh, mm. It's not an experience I've had that often, um, but um, I remember two particular pieces of art. One is in the crypt at Winchester Cathedral, which is a, a Sculpture of a Standing Woman by Anthony Gormley. Oh, right, yeah. Um, and the crypt at Winchester is, um, it's all whitewashed, it's all white. Sort of arches, um, vaulted ceilings, and they're all, they're all white. Uh, but it floods, not deeply, uh, but it floods to a depth of about two inches, and they've got walkways above the level of the water. So you've got this sculpture of this, this woman who's standing with her hands sort of in front of her, um, and sort of looking slightly down. Uh, so life size, I think she's about five foot six. Um, and you can't get very close. So she's, she's about 10, 15 feet away from you. And be- because there's nothing disturbing the water, it's completely still like a mirror. Wow. And you've got the, the reflection in the water and it's just unutterably beautiful. Um, and then at the, Tate in St. Ives, which is a great little gallery. I completely recommend. Um, they, I, don't, I, I suspect it's not still there, and I wish I could remember the name of the artist. Um, but he had an inst- installation that was in two parts. The first was a little film of him chopping down a massive oak tree and with the chainsaw, like live on the side of the you know, in the forest where he'd cut this tree down by the side of a stream. Carving a ball out of the oak tree trunk. It was a massive tree. It was, for those people about to get upset, it was one they had to fell. It was going going to be felled anyway. Um, And it's it's a huge tree. It was about five, six feet across this tree trunk. And he carved... Uh, the film was of him carving this this ball with a chainsaw and then pushing it into the stream. And then over a period of about eight or nine years, um, he went back to this ball every year as it got washed down the stream, got stuck under a bridge and he had to move it and take it round to the other side of the bridge. And it got washed further down the stream into the river and then it floated down the river and it got to the estuary and it sat on, sat on the mudflats in the estuary for a year. And then one final high tide lifted it up and it just drifted out to sea and nobody knows where it went. Was uh, it by Goldsworthy? It might well be. That rings a bell. I'm just thinking of like land artists. Um, um, my, my friend Harry would be able to tell you exactly who uh, that is. It, it was just a really engrossing story told, you know, in about a 15 minute short film. And then yeah. you went out of the sort of screening room and this was years ago. So it wasn't a big screen. It was basically a telly. <laughs> um, and you went into a little gallery. It was just a white room. And in it were three wooden 
shapes, each one about four, four or five feet high, um, carved again with a chainsaw, carved out of a solid piece of tree. And one was a sphere, one was a cube, and one was a tetrahedron. Wow. And they were exactly the same height, which must have taken some doing. It really must. Um, and they'd just been blowtorched to make them black. And they just sat there. And it's one of the most profound. I, I, lit, I stood and stared at it for easily an hour. Because there was just something about it. It was, it was just absorbing. Yeah, it's incredible what, it, what art can do. I think, interestingly, like, you talk about Gormley and the, the sculpture there. Like, um, one of my first experiences of like, art that was not just Renaissance painters and stuff like that was Field, which is like a series, especially a room full of like, tiny little figures that mm-hmm. Gormley sculpted. And I remember seeing that when I was about... Um, 10 I think um at Liverpool at what is now Tate Liverpool I went with my dad and it, it didn't used to be Tate Liverpool and you used to pay per floor and you'd put your money into like a car parking ticket machine and you'd stick a car parking ticket to yourself to go into the floor that you want awesome. to be out on yeah it was great um that was the Tate and I think it's probably a bit classier but it was quite fun at the time. <laughs> um but yeah so I remember seeing Field there and I remember seeing um god there's quite a few different things that I saw there like uh, I saw Picasso and Dali and stuff like that and um Hockney as well um Splash so that was kind of a realization that it wasn't just Rembrandt I think my whole exposure to art up to that point had been like the renaissance of Rembrandt which is totally valid and something I will talk about but like um it's it kind of it, it's so much more than that. And those things are beautiful and amazing, but they're just part of a much bigger picture now mm-hmm. um, than I think uh, we were led to believe, especially at primary school <laughs> at the time. Yeah. And I should just say, actually, uh, links to as many of these art pieces as I can find. Uh, I have got so many. In the show. Thank to you. Give you. <laughs> uh, so links to a lot of this stuff uh, will be in the show notes. Um, yeah. Uh, it, basically, if we can find it, it'll be in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, which can be found at www.destinationvenus.co.uk. Click on the blog thing on the top right hand of your screen and you'll find it. Yeah, there's um, I've got quite a few links for you because there's a lot of galleries that have um, gone online and a lot of them got virtual tours and stuff. Um, and through like the Google Art Project as well, there's like a lot of stuff that people can actually go and find things and, and look around galleries and discover exciting things that make them go ooh as well, um, which... It's always fun to do when you're inside mm. <laughs> and have nothing else to do with your life. <laughs> yeah, isn't it maddening that the weather is so brilliant and no one's it's allowed really out? Nice. <laughs> I stood on my step for a while this afternoon. <laughs> I tried to get some vitamin D. I was like, yeah, I'm yeah. just going to stand in the sun for a little minute. <laughs> I'm, I'm privileged to have quite a big garden. Uh, That's good. But uh, yeah, it, it sucks. It really sucks that everyone's got to be indoors for all of this. It's all right. It'll snow at the weekend and then... Uh... Yay! <laughs> we'll be glad but yeah okay anyway so, sorry i just interrupted and went on a massive digression which is no, un- it's totally cool. which is unheard of for this podcast <laughs> um there's but... no steve to tell you to stay on target <laughs> that's true come back steve um steve's working he's a key worker sadly i know so, bless him. Uh, um so i'm gonna i'm just gonna hand back to you and stop interrupting cool no it's cool um please ask questions i may or may not be able to answer them um so basically i just thought i would touch on some uh key term key terms and uh things that a lot of people probably um have heard of in art or their words and 
uh, eras and stuff that get bandied about and you don't necessarily have a frame of reference. So I'm kind of trying to put a frame of reference on things essentially. So we'll go all the way back, but not all the way back because then we're going too far. Um, and we'll go to the Renaissance because the Renaissance is kind of the one that I think most people have heard of. Um, it's a big, big old art history era with a lot of major players um, that people have definitely heard of, mostly because they named the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles after them. And Absolutely. I think that's a really key That was my introduction point. to Michelangelo. Right? Okay, so, and I think mine too, I think as a kid, like, I remember watching it and people being like, you know, they're named after painters and things. And I'm like, oh, really? You have, more, you have more of an excuse for that than me because I'm 10 years older than you. <laughs> yeah, right. And they were, my uh, formative years were very much shaped by um, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, um, which were, of course, Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles in England because ninja was too violent a term. So, so basically, um, in the Renaissance, which means rebirth for those of us, um, they had the artists and just generally there was a massive interest in the classical past. So um, classicism is a genre of Renaissance art. It's not uh, It's not all of Renaissance art. It's a huge term that encompasses a lot of stuff that happened between 1300 and 1600, and like 300 years is a long period of time. Um, so uh, there was a, a huge interest in, in the classical past, so that's like the Greco-Roman era of antiquity. So people were really interested in what the Greeks and the Romans did. Um and a lot of the artists were really attempting to not just sort of imitate the work of that era, but to surpass it, to sort of develop it and, and to be more, um, more better. It's a lovely bit of grammar for you there. Isn't um, it? I like that. They were really kind of interested in like ratio and symmetry and proportion. And um, they were trying to build uh, into their artworks um, things that were much more um focused on design and structure and also they were trying to uh demonstrate through their imagery things like um, myth and uh, and scholarship and there was a lot of interest in like learning and um things like that so um their focus was definitely on the classical subject matter which is either historical or mythological um and their works were very much um unified by coherent principles of design um and they were uh, a lot of that was taken from classical art and architecture. So um, the classicists uh, include Michelangelo, Donatello, Raphael, and Leonardo da Vinci. And now you've just named all four turtles. I have named um, all the turtles. I'm just going to pause there for a second because no my technical expertise has been called on uh, elsewhere. I'll be two seconds. No bother. Well, I should be two minutes probably. That's all good. Bear with. Sorry about this. So there was a brief pause while I went and did some technical support somewhere else, and then we were back. So, Renaissance, Michelangelo, Donatello, Raphael, Leonardo. The other one. The other one. Leonardo da Vinci. He's Uh, been dead for 400 years. His ego will be fine. Yeah, his ego will be fine. Uh, He's one of the most important figures in uh, art history, if not uh, physiology, anatomy, and various other things as well. Um, The original Renaissance man. Um, Indeed. So, yeah, he... um, was very much focused in, uh, in humanism. Uh, so humanism obviously is a, uh, a focus on, on people, at which point within the Renaissance, artists went from just craftspeople who were often uh, paid large, large sums of money by churches and guilds and whatever to mm-hmm. depict them 
doing interesting things to actually having something to say of their own. So this is kind of the beginning of an era when artists were actually um, trying to define their own philosophy through their work um, and demonstrating that. So would it be fair to say that this was the kind of the, the beginning of what we would now call a sort of modern artist? What, we'd, what we would think of as an artist, yeah. I'm not going to use the word modern because that will come later. <laughs> <laughs> um, but point. yeah, how, how we would use the term in, in terms of what an artist is in, in the contemporary parlance, yeah, definitely. So at that point with humanism, they challenged uh, the, uh, the, the the domination of theology and they tried to focus on rational inquiry. So they, were, they had a real strong belief in education and um, logical patterns of the universe. They were interested in like... Uh, trying to actually figure things out and work out why things were the way they were um, and that led to the founding of a lot of art academies so yeah that's that's that kind of led into um, different aspects of, of renaissance so naturalism kind of came almost out of that as well and a good example of naturalism would be the Arnolfini portrait by Jan van Eyck and that's kind of like one of the earlier examples of um, of Dutch Dutch art I guess um, mm-hmm. so they were really developing perspective as we see perspective in terms of the way uh, images are put together, right? So in yeah, comics, which we look at all the time, you have, obviously, you, you will use different types of perspective. So, like, when you see superheroes, often we have forced perspective to make them look more um, powerful and to give them, like, a real interesting stance and stuff, whereas naturalists were very much obsessed with the idea of it being like real life. So in the absence of a photograph, a naturalist portrait would be the closest to reality you could get. Right. Yeah. Um, now, this is where some, and I, I may be preempting here, so forgive me, um, but you've just sparked a memory. Um, uh-huh. I remember a, a long time ago uh, seeing a documentary by David Hopp, um, who was making the case that Renaissance artists, I think it was Renaissance artists, might have used camera obscuras oh, to, yeah, yeah. Uh, to, to get the realism. There is uh, a lot of suggestion about that. Um, actually, uh, interestingly, I'm trying to think of his name. There's um, Who are the two magicians? Really famous. One of them doesn't say words. Penn and Teller. Uh, Penn and Teller. I believe they had... I'm sure Teller actually was involved with a, um, a documentary about that. And I am looking it up as we speak. Uh, camera... Camera obscura, sorry, because I remember looking this up a while ago. Yes, it's to do with um, actually, it's it's not Renaissance. It's it's, late, it's later. It's Vermeer, um, and it's to do uh, which is the 17th century, which is technically Baroque. So that's the next. Well, we'll, we'll come back to that then. We can come back to that. Um, but yeah, so again, yes, Dutch, and yeah, um, trying to actually, yeah, the the idea. They did a big experiment. There's a whole documentary about it, which you can watch. You can rent that on YouTube. I've just discovered. Um, so yeah, so in naturalism, which is back in the old uh, the, the Renaissance. So we're looking at 1434 for the Arnolfini portrait. So that's quite a long way before the Baroque era. They really wanted to create art that looked natural to the viewer and they had a minimum of stylistic distortion. So if you look at art prior to that, you quite often find this, they're quite stylized, especially like the shapes of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also wanted it to have convincing surface texture and lighting and mood and feeling. Now, the Arnolfini portrait is an absolute like mastery of that. So the clothing textures and the dog, the hair and everything, it's just really as close to realism as, as you could get at that time using the materials they had and with the, the technology they had, because that was prior to this camera obscura uh, interestingness that came a bit later, yeah. But yeah, and I am moving on then to the 17th century. We're skipping forward a little bit. To the Baroque era. Imagine um, the sound of the TARDIS right now. 
Yeah, that would be cool. Put it in. Actually, yeah, um, don't you mind? I'll, I'll probably put it in. Yeah, in post. let's do it. So in the Baroque era, um, basically it came after the Renaissance, and so this is when you get people like uh, Johannes Vermeer, and you get uh, I've got uh, like a list of different Dutch masters actually. I've got Rembrandt, Peter Paul Rubens, and Anthony Van Dyck uh, on my list here because Rembrandt obviously did the Night Watch, and then of course the cover of the Night Watch by Terry Pratchett. Is, is a, a reworked version. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So I remember when I went to um, Amsterdam last last March. Yeah, I was in Amsterdam last March. We went to see the Night Watch purely because I've seen the pastiche <laughs> so many times. Um, have, and have it is seen, incredible. Uh, have you seen um, the advert for whichever gallery it's in uh, that's it's, on YouTube? Of it's the, in the Rijksmuseum in uh, Amsterdam. Um, well, there's, a, there's a, an advert for that gallery. Um, which you'll find on YouTube, links in the show notes, folks. Um, which has um, it's 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 like a flash mob. It's filmed in a shopping centre, and it's people who are characters from that painting. That's um, amazing. And you've got the watchman chasing the thief through the through the the shopping centre, and there's people jumping over balconies and sliding down ropes, and it all ends up with them forming the tableau of the night That's- watch. That's amazing. I've got. To, I, I will look forward to finding that in the show um, notes. Yeah, links, links in the show notes. It's brilliant. The Rijks Museum is incredible. Honestly, like um, if you're ever in Amsterdam and uh, want something to do for an afternoon, it's totally worth doing. It's it's a fantastic place to spend some time. The Rembrandt section of it, aside from the Night Watch, they had a had a little Rembrandt exhibition on when I was there, and it was a rugby scrum, uh, something I am familiar with, but um, did <laughs> That's not a whole want to, episode, huh? Yeah, but did not want to experience in a gallery it's slightly <laughs> terrifying but yeah so um so those are some of the early dutch masters and yes the, there is that fascinating thing about whether vermeer used um uh, used a camera obscura there is uh, uh, some fascinating there's loads of amazing videos about that and there is actually um yeah penn and teller uh, worked with this guy um tim jennison who did uh-huh. a lot of experiments trying to figure out um if he if and how he used um he used it and this guy actually recreates the whole thing it's a really fascinating documentary it's well worth a watch and i actually hadn't really thought about talking about it very much um because i want to move on to rococo honestly um from from the dutch masters because i think you know that the the work they do is fascinating but not not really a huge change from naturalism Mm -hmm. um whereas if we move into Something like Rococo, uh, we get to talk about Doctor Who again, which is great. Fantastic. So, um, Always talk about <laughs> Rococo. Uh, this is this is the most fascinating link to Doctor Who that I think is in all of them. Uh, I expected not to get to Doctor Who until I got to Van Gogh, uh, but I didn't. Uh, I found I found a fun thing here. So Rococo uh, was a, as with so many things in art, loads of stuff is essentially just a massive diss. It's like people throwing shade um and just trying to put down new ideas and and stuff uh especially bearing in mind that a lot of art was still um supported or bankrolled or uh related to religion and rococo was originally a term of insult describing art that was overly um busy decorative florid um and it was synonymous with uh louis XV's mistress madame de pompadour Uh Yeah, and it was uh, suggestive of, and this is a quote from the book Isms, it was suggestive of his feminised, corrupt, incompetent government and facile, erotic titillation. So yeah, well, Rococo... that's all him. It did, didn't it? Um, so 
Rococo is just like frou-frou as hell. Um, my favorite example of a piece of Rococo art is The Swing by Jean-Honoré Fragonarde. Please excuse my French accent. It's not as good as my German. But it's a really famous painting. They have it. It's in the National Gallery in London. Um, it's massive. And it depicts this um, woman in a big dress on a swing in a garden. Um, and, you know, it's just cheeky and girly and pretty. And it's it's phenomenal. And this was just a huge, they weren't really trying to reject naturalism so much, but they were just trying to, they were trying to abandon the seriousness of everything that had come before it. Um, it was playful and, um, unlinear and there's a lot of curves and S shapes in the design of paintings as well. If you think about the way that you track motion through a painting, which you do, um, <laughs> you may or may not realize you do, but it's how you lead the eye and it's, it's how people construct, um, comic book pages as well. Like it's designed to lead your eye in a specific way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same in a, in, a, in a static painting, which is just one image. They try and make the eye. So you find that there's a lot of S-shaped patterning um, and also a lot of a swirly, elaborate decoration. And then the color change was really huge as well. They involved a lot of pale blue and pink, like rose pink, natural, still natural colors, but they were not really used in the same way previously um, as they mm-hmm. had been in Rococo. So... Um, yeah, Rococo was a, a fun little moment from uh, 1715 to 1774. So uh, that was kind of pushing this um, fun frolics thing. And you've got a lot of uh, nude ladies and gardens and things like that, which um, it's it's witty and airy and elegant. And it's not meant to be this serious looking at religion and history and classics and being educational. It's just meant to be silly and fun, which was very much the French court, French court at that time. Yeah. But there was then a huge reaction against it, um, which was neoclassicism. So if you remember classicism from the Renaissance, basically, it's the same again. Um, And they were looking backwards to understand the changes to um, society and things that were happening at the time. Uh, And again, (laughs) which which seems to be like a real like thing with artists. They just keep like going, oh, yeah, let's just do the same thing. Um, which is kind of wild. So neoclassicism lasted from the 18th century to the early 19th, and it was just a huge, um, huge rejection of Rococo. They just hated it, um, and they wanted to go back to that seriousness. Um, And it was very closely identified with the Enlightenment Uh um, and the French Revolution. So there was a lot of emphasis on reason, rationality, and um, morals, and, you know, know, being... Up, upright and good citizens um, and also they were influenced by a lot of new archaeological discoveries that were happening in Italy and Greece so they were able to like kind of look back again at things but they were able to really see them because they were being dug out the ground and they were discovering all these exciting new things old things new old things um they counted as new because they'd never seen them before yeah right and they wanted to create a uh, a modern virtuous society based on that kind of those greco-roman ideals um but it was again the art style is very high uh, highly moral and, and quite serious and one of the um obviously that french revolution thing one of the examples would be uh, jacques louis david the death of marat so it just depicts his um his uh, i think suicide i can't remember if it's suicide I know, or Murder. Yeah. I, sorry, I only know that because I studied it in history. I know that painting it's fine. because I know uh, the painting. We uh, I did a whole project on that damn painting. I, so <laughs> I, I don't know it from art, but I know it, I know it from history. I uh, I had to study yeah. it. I did a series of painting, a series of uh, a piece of work based on a series of paintings. It was about was about murder, so I should have remembered that honestly. Um, because in it was things like there was the death of Marat. There was what did I have in it? I had uh, uh, Gentileschi as well. So I had the um, 
Judith and Holofernes, and I think I had Samson and Delilah in there too. So there was a lot of lot of decapitation, honestly. <laughs> but yeah, mm. so yeah, and also I had Liechtenstein, who we will come back to because he's a big thief. Um, oh yes, he is. <laughs> and we we really ought to talk about that. So yeah, so the death of Marat. So I'll, I'll get really cross about that though. You can, it's fine. Um, the thing about the the, the Chateau David is that's, that's really his most um, contemporary for his era painting, uh, whereas a lot of the rest of them really do look back at, at, at Greek and Roman and, and things like that. So, yeah. Then we move forward again to the 19th century um, to a group of people uh, who rejected uh, academies. We got this real rejection of the academies of art at that point, and everyone was just going, "Oh God, I'm sick of being told to just make everything really classical. Why would I do that? It doesn't make sense. That's not the era we live in now." And so, of course, we got the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood mm-hmm. uh, in the 1850s, who were again into natural, naturalistic detail and vivid color, and they really wanted to look at instead of looking at the classics, they wanted to look at the medieval, um, and they wanted to look at literary uh, uh, sort of subject matter. So they'd have you've got. The, the key people for the pre-Raphaelites are, are Holman Hunt, Millet, and uh, um, Dante of Rossetti. And Millet's Ophelia, of course, is one of the most famous um, pieces of art from that era. Famous especially because the person um, who modelled for it, <laughs> she uh, she nearly got pneumonia, I believe, from lying in that bath for so damn long. Oh, I had certainly heard that story, right. yeah. Yeah, so there was a brilliant series on um, BBC about them, which may or may not be somewhere on the internet. We can only hope. Um, it's really fascinating because I think a lot of people look at the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood and they kind of think of it as chocolate box paintings and they're just really pretty and isn't it nice? But they were really shaking up the establishment and they were just really fighting against this idea of the classical ideal being like the only way to do art. Um, so, yeah, and they had uh, they had uh, a lot of interest in um, detail and the setting and rather than having it being like this person is focused in this way to make this look that way like the classics did in, in classical um, art it was more important to actually focus on the detail of the setting as well as the character on inserting a character into a setting. Uh-huh. Um, so later on in the decade, we then got William Morris as part of that um, idea of um, rejection of, of those things. And we, we again go into aestheticism. And of course, Morris is most famous for patterns and things like that. So it kind of branched out from more traditional art forms into something different. Meanwhile, in Europe, uh, in 1800 to 1900-ish, depending on the location, we got Impressionism, which I think is something that most people have heard of, um, which is uh, another term of dissent. This is another one like Rococo, where people are like, Ugh, you've just done an impression of an artist. It's not really art, is it? It's unfinished. So it was uh, the academies again. This is another rejection of the academies and the way they insisted that people worked. Um, and so from this we get Cezanne and Degas and Monet, and obviously Monet, the water lily pond is like super famous. Degas did a lot of dances. Um, and the idea with that one, um, the idea with that, that it was, it was very informal. It was spontaneous. They weren't interested in trying to actually tell stories. So even the um, pre-Raphaelites were interested in literature and, and some storytelling to a degree, mm-hmm. whereas the Impressionists were just trying to give an impression of a moment using light and color and mood and movement and things like that. So they, they did that and they did something wild. They started painting outdoors. <gasps> it's a shock. It's a huge shock. So you'll see like there's a Rouen Cathedral by, by uh, Monet as well, which is uh, very famous. And they actually started going out outside with their uh, amazing uh, skills and showing things that were very different. Then in the 1880s, so later on, uh, we started to get post-impressionism. 
So this was just even a, a complete, re- like they didn't have a common goal. They weren't trying to do something specific. Realistically, they were trying to communicate emotion. They were abandoning naturalism. They were focusing on structure and volume and space um, and rejecting uh bourgeois standards of taste and of course within this era we very much had people like Toulouse-Lautrec who was very much part of the bohemian society and he was spending a lot of time in Montmartre drinking a lot of absinthe and hanging out with a lot of can-can dancers so that was him and then of course further down further into France we had Van Gogh or as he is meant to be pronounced Van Gogh doing his thing Van Gogh oh which is a make of tent really yes it is (laughs) I used to sell those um yeah, no, uh, Van, Van Gogh, who I didn't get to the Van Gogh Museum, sadly, because um, I didn't realise you had to book a day in advance. So I have to go back to Amsterdam, which is just really sad. Honestly, I'm devastated by that. Um, mm. <laughs> also responsible Amsterdam. for one of the best episodes of Doctor Who, just to bring it back to the Doctor. Exactly, and that's the thing, really. Uh, and um, that, that scene is going to be in the show notes. Oh, please do. Uh, the Starry Night by Van, Van Gogh has been like one of my favourite paintings forever uh, and of course was the subject matter for the Don McLean song uh, and as, as well as the background for that amazing TARDIS picture which is like one of the best uses of art in a television series I've ever seen I think that exploding I mean, TARDIS. I'm inclined to agree yeah yeah really really phenomenal certainly far better than the the uses of art in something like a lower low for example um oh uh, you refer of course to the fall of Madonna with the big boobies I do. I very much do. Hilariously. I thought, was, I thought that was hilarious when I was 11. I did too. Hilariously, when I was in Amsterdam, that was on television. God. It was a really random afternoon. When I just spent a random afternoon watching a little low in, in English with Dutch subtitles. It was a really strange experience. But yeah, so uh, the post-impressionists, obviously, they were just rejecting all of that stuff, which is brilliant because that led to so many changes and so much uh, forward momentum in art and it led to things like cubism because they were really abandoning the idea that things should be painted exactly as they are they were more exploring the idea of volume and space which you can really see with like uh, the way uh, van gogh paints especially and his use of perspective is just lies it's just hilarious lies but his mark making is so much more interesting like the amount of paint used on the brush the amount of the colors and the the lack of reality mm. just to express the emotion of the the image is just much more interesting to me. I've sat and looked at sunflowers for like hours. I've watched people walk into the ta- into the National Gallery, take pictures of it, and walk out, and I've just been sitting there just experiencing it. And I sound like such a complete douche saying it, but like you can't get the real understanding of that that work no, by taking see, a picture of it or looking at it for like two seconds it's just not possible no you see i'm inclined to agree and i don't i don't think that sounds douchey at all um it, the i've never understood why people would go into a gallery and then just get around it as fast as possible no <laughs> i it's okay hang on just one second phone's going again it's been that kind of day it was a brief pause and uh, then we got back to it Right, shall we just get back? Where were we? Well, well, yep, I think I just said something about Cubism, but I couldn't be sure. Yes, yes. Yeah, you were. You were getting, we were getting back into Cubism. Getting back into modernism, technically. So um, modernism is basically early 20th century, and it covers a lot of different um, things. As with, with the Renaissance, it covers a lot of different things. Baroque covers a lot of different things. Um, so modernism is not where we are anymore, which is... Something that I kind of, I think as a kid, I didn't really get. I was like, well, but it is the modern era. I don't understand. Um, and that's why I'm, earlier I was talking about contemporary art versus modern art. Does that make sense? So um, modernism 
as it exists, uh, covers early 20th century, or a lot of the 20th century, um, and has various different things you probably have heard of throughout it, such as Cubism, which is made famous by uh, Georges Braque and Picasso, um, who Mm -hmm. was famously a really horrible person, but an incredible artist who changed the face of everything. It's annoying when they do that, isn't it? Yeah, it sucks. Um, Cubism was really uh, revolutionary because of the way it tried to depict multiple viewpoints of the same object within one painting. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the big changes that happened with Cubism. Picasso is one of the foremost proponents of that. I'm trying like crazy to remember the name of the painting because I didn't write it down uh, that I was going to give as an example. So we'll just quickly look that one um, up. Well, while you're doing that, the one I know is Guernica. Guernica is, yeah, Guernica is absolutely uh, amazing. Uh, not just because of the style, but because of what it depicts. And I think, um, again, that goes back to that idea you were talking about the contemporary artist and artist as a uh, someone with a message, someone saying what they want to say and someone putting their point of view across into the world. You yeah. know? And, and Guernica really really does depict that yeah wow, I, I can't it's probably it's probably apocryphal but there's a story about um picasso meeting a, a high-ranking nazi official in paris before the war before the second world war and after the, i mean he was there so. um and uh, sort of being introduced to this high-ranking sort of german diplomat as the guy who painted guernica and the diplomat saying ah so it was you who did that and picasso kind of looking at him going no that was you yeah, yeah. I wish that was true. I really, I, 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 I want that to be true. But I'd I suspect, love that to be true. I suspect it is not. It, it very much sounds like the kind of thing that he would have done in Venice. Weeping Woman is the one I was going to bring up. Weeping Woman is is one of the, I think, the one that a lot of people think of when they think of cubism because it's like you see everything at once. So, like, you see both sides of her face at once. You can see her face through her handkerchief. Like, everything in it is quite complex. And you get that kind of idea of the seeing everything at once through that image quite quite quickly and quite easily. And that was painted in 1937. So it's and it's of, I believe, I'm trying to remember the name of the lady who it's about specifically. Nope, can't find it. Dorama. Uh, it's about Dorama. It's of Dorama. Sorry, the, the painting who I believe was his lover, one of many. One of many, many, many. One of many. many. Not a good guy. But yeah, not because he had lots of lovers, just because of how he treated them. So, yeah, yes. so specifically, yeah, um, Weeping Woman is well worth a look. It's on, you can look at it on the Tate Online, uh, links in the show notes. Yes, so the other, one of the other interesting things uh, from that, from the modernist era, aside from Cubism, is Dadaism. So Dadaism, I think, uh, is slight is earlier than Cubism to a degree in that uh, it was kind of created during World War One. So we're going back a little touch. And basically, one of the lovely Dadaist quotes: the Dadaists proclaimed uh, that all received moral, political, and aesthetic ben- uh, beliefs had been destroyed by the war. So they wanted to create this sort of irreverent, destructive approach to art. So everything in Dadaism is just kind of weird. Honestly, really, really weird. And in a strange order, they liked nonsense uh, and they liked uh, chance and they liked to do very, very strange things. Um, Marcel Duchamp is one of the key people there. And, and he obviously was the guy that put a urinal into a gallery. Um, and I think that the ready-mades and that whole thing really changed what people, the way people viewed art altogether. So that's one of the reasons he's so important to think about and to look at because... Before that point, the idea of doing that would have been just insane. And at the time, it was insane, to be fair. Um, signing a urinal and just shoving it in the middle of a gallery, calling it a fountain, it was kind of uh, ballsy. Yeah. 
it's very it's a pretty ballsy thing to do. Um, so yeah, that was that's one of the, the the things you may have heard of around. Um, and the other one from modern the modernist era uh, that I wanted to touch on was surrealism. Surrealism. Uh, I think the most famous uh, surrealists that uh, people have really really heard of are Dali and uh, Frida Kahlo. Uh, Juan Miro. Oh, I go back to Dadaism for a minute because I wanted to mention Man Ray, of course, because photography was uh, mm. a thing by that point. So you can make some really weird stuff with that. Um, but yeah, surrealism was kind of a development of Dadaism. It was an offshoot of Dadaism. And it was really kind of, it was founded as a concept by uh, uh, the poet Andre Bresson in 1924. Uh, and it was kind of, it was really obsessed with um, with the, the exploring the, um, the furthering the exploration of the irrational and the weird from Dadaism, but really uh, looking into uh, other things like spiritualism and Freudian psychoanalysis, uh, and um, it also they did things like automatic painting. So like they were trying to access the subconscious and uh, just paint the inside of their mind and they did some trippy drugs as well uh, as well to try and get there and do those things um so the surrealists were really trying to trying to show things and um either show what was deeply inside their brains or using like ap- apocryphal imagery to demonstrate something uh that they uh were feeling or that something they understood and the way the world functioned so this is again um you get things then like mountain lake by salvador dali which is about um with a cut-off telephone in the foreground Mm -hmm. like the lake is a dead fish uh, and it's all a representation of uh grief and that discovery of uh of death uh as related to the war i believe um i can't remember 100 percent on that so yeah at the same time surrealism especially Dali isn't just like let's do something weird for the sake of weird it's much more uh, and and not actually have any technique Salvador Dali's technique at painting light is something that is it floors me every time I see it he mm. can paint he can paint it's it's oil but it's so flat and the way that the the gold comes through from the clouds to actually really show you whether the shaft of light is hitting to to light the part of the painting that is, is moving across is is phenomenal and that technique there really demonstrates that these artists while they were doing something that was considered by everyone around them to be like just strange and not uh, really acceptable and not normal and, and just beyond the pale in some some cases um you know it really was done well if that makes sense mm-hmm. um which i think probably bothered the uh, the academies and things a little bit more than they'd have liked so if these guys were wandering around doing like these weird things and it looked rubbish and it wasn't good technique then i think they'd have been they'd have felt vindicated but unfortunately these guys were really really good <laughs> um they have the all the you know that that attention to detail of, of realist painters but without actually looking at the world and just de- developing things from their own brains so yeah quite quite fascinating those guys so we're going to skip forward a little bit further um and i kind of want to briefly discuss pop art and this is where you can get angry about Liechtenstein. <laughs> so um pop art was obviously famously popularized by uh, Andy Warhol, who created a lot of repeating uh, screen print patterns, which now can be found on everything from T-shirts to furnishings and shoes. Like Warhol stuff has been popularized and turned into just the most, just commodified to a degree that I personally can't handle. I find it really, um, I find it quite distressing, actually. Um, I, I can't because help Because Warhol's... 
entire point was like I have made a piece of art from something that is a commodity and then people are making a commodity from a piece of art that was made about a commodity like he was making a point oh it just yeah it hurts my head <laughs> I, I can't help thinking that from what I know of Warhol he may well have found that funny he would probably find it really funny yeah he, he, I think so yeah he would also find like the whole the internet and you know you know everyone will be famous in five minutes is one of his 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 um, quotes and it's like yeah totally like TikTok would baffle the hell out of him but the same time he'd be like i was right look i was right no you see i think again i think he'd totally get tiktok and, yeah, snapchat, yeah. and he, snapchat i he think he'd be like, yeah from a philosophical standpoint i think he would think it was absolutely brilliant like he'd just find it wild he'd been out there making tiktoks constantly of people sleeping you know so yeah video art and screen print and um reproducing um com- com- commodities so like the campbell mm-hmm. soup can that's really famous and then like obviously he he also did things like he pushed pushed stuff to the absolute uh, extreme and, and to see if it would actually like how, how many times he could get a screen print out before it completely burnt which you can see in in some of the the, the wall the marilyn monroe one uh so yeah it's it's kind of amazing the stuff that he did there but then of course we have uh, roy lichtenstein Yes. Who, who basically just ripped off comic book artists. Yeah, and it wasn't even subtle. I mean, no, it's he, not even <laughs> as though he, he, he was inspired. He just straight no. up copied. Yeah, he took a he took pictures. He took he took frames um, from comics and then he painted them big. That was it. That was his whole thing. Yeah. And somehow um, that was art. Yeah, worth comics weren't hundreds of thousands, but yeah, the people who drew these original, who he never acknowledged. No, he never did. I find that absolutely. It's, it's, yeah. just, it's just from an artist. It's well, from anybody, but particularly from an artist, that is disgraceful behaviour. It, it really is. Did he ever sue anyone for plagiarism? I don't know. I actually don't know. Because I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look that up before I do the I think show. You notes. should <laughs> because because if he did, that just makes him an even lower form of life. Oh yeah, completely. I mean, that whole thing for me. I um, I remember trying to find who the original artists were, and this was when I was doing my degree, so it's quite some time ago. Uh, we're looking at like ten years ago or so, and it was actually really difficult to cross-reference them. Now I think it's been done many, many times. Mm-hmm. Because um, recently I've seen it, I've seen the the articles come up and the things around explaining. Yeah, this is who he ripped off, and this is exactly the comic it's from. But actually, trying to find that information, like I say, ten years ago was not easy because that's something I I wanted to do because I used um, the the drowning woman uh, as my unsolved mystery in my murders project, as I mentioned earlier. Mm. And uh, I cu- I couldn't find out what it was from, but I knew that he was ripping them off, <laughs> and that was part of the reason for having him as my unsolved mystery. You know, the idea that he, uh, you know, we knew what happened to all these people, these people whose stories had been taken from antiquity or whose stories were real life and that were actually documented. But he had stolen this concept from somebody, had stolen this character, and he just changed the words in the speech bubble. That was all he did, yeah. and it was then his. And um, I really wanted to sort of expose that a little bit, and uh, unfortunately. I uh, was unable to do so at the time. Just but the internet did not have the answers. Mm. So I certainly still not. But uh... no, I'm, I think it does. I'm sure I will look it up. I'm going to find out and I'll give you that that link if I can find it. Um, but I've definitely seen it recently. Someone has talked about it recently. By recently, I mean within the last three years. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
but not I couldn't couldn't find that information at the time at all. So yeah, he's not not great. I'm very very much that person that's like you know give artists credit like at everybody when they repost things painted by people or worked on by people. There was a while ago, um, Tula Lote did an amazing, beautiful, incredible art for Birds of Prey. Like she did a series of posters and they were stunning. They were, they were gorgeous, absolutely stunning. And I kept seeing them reposted with no credit, and I lost. I absolutely lost it on Twitter about it. And she just replied with, thank you. I was like, mm, yeah, no, don't do it. It just made me so angry that they were reposting her work without giving her credit. So Lichtenstein, I mean, he wouldn't make it now. Everyone would just absolutely tear him a new one. But back then, he could get away with it, which kind of sucks. Yeah, he does a bit. Yeah, it really does. So that's pop. Um, pop art's still huge, and a lot of people are still kind of pushing that that kind of direction, which I think is great because it, it kind of gives more. And it's this is where it gets really like shitty, honestly. Um, it gives more validity to things like comics art, which I don't think should have to be given validity by the art community because they are art. That is just a fact. I agree too. It's just a fact. But unfortunately, the people like Lichtenstein kind of almost delegitimize them by doing what he did, which is a massive frustration that I have. Um, and I, I collect more um, pop-based or comic book-based art than anything else. I, I do have... Yeah, you've been in my my dining room, Reggie. I've got uh, a Dali print. It's not a real print. It's just a poster from a, a museum that I never went to. Um, <laughs> and also a Picasso one, again, that I never went to. These are gifts. They were lovely, lovely gifts. I love them. They're great. I've got them on the wall. So, you know, and I've got a, I've got a really nice original watercolour and stuff like that in my dining room, which is the room that people from the outside world see. But if you actually made it any further into the house ever, everything else is just popular culture made into art by phenomenal like people working currently in in illustrative work the kind of people that are at things like thought bubble you know um sequential art and an artwork based on um popular culture it's just to me it's it's fantastic and i love it i'm really really here for it so um that's that's what i'm my house is covered in fan art mostly <laughs> so that's um fair enough yeah it is so yeah uh, Liechtenstein. no goodbye thank you so yeah and then after after pop really because that was kind of a 60s early 70s kind of vibe we get to postmodernism, which um really is a whole fascinating and a weird place where we get things like the absolutely amazing um three ball total equilibrium tank by jeff coons so you just start to get really strange stuff happening like that tank which links in the show notes uh, i remember seeing it when i was at the same exhibition i saw field when i was a kid and it's three basketballs in a fish tank suspended by the use of liquid that's it but the fact that it's it's just done it's kind of a miracle of science to a degree it's like where science and art intersect for me in terms of like actually getting them to do what it's done kind of is is fascinating and, and that's part of that postmodernism is like what can mm-hmm. you do what, what can you push and and that's that was kind of a, a, a thing there they're really then they're not trying to do something highbrow. It's all very much like, yeah, here it is, I've put it, that's it, that's what it is. A lowbrow art as a, um, as a concept has come gone in a completely different direction than that. So if you actually look up lowbrow art, it's very, very different than that. It's very comic-y, actually. But yeah, the this, this idea that art doesn't have to be about spirituality or the unconscious mind or uh, politics. It can just be three basketballs in a fish tank. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of the beginning of... of of a big change and a big shift in, in what art, art did. And, and then we get to sort of things like conceptualism, which is essentially the idea is, is kind of, you know, more important than an actual object. Mm. And that's kind of, it's not where we are now so much because 
conceptualism is, you know, conceptual art is kind of, it's, we've moved on theoretically, but I think um, people are still working with that notion. And I think that's yeah. something that we kind of have to recognize is that now art is, has gone beyond just like painting a picture. We're looking at things like, you know, projection and put even like uh, bringing in sort of choreography into into uh, art spaces so like you're involving things other things um like dance within a space as an aspect of conceptual art and you get things like um massive installations which are just much more conceptual than they are specifically beautiful it doesn't have to be about the aesthetic as much as it's about the idea and um that's what i did at university unfortunately (laughs) i don't think that's unfortunate I don't know. Um, I've, I've got like three, three, I've got a wax cube that's like a foot on a side um, that's full of the, it's, it's wax and inset into it is the, the sweepings out of the, of a fireplace and the inside of a Hoover bag. Like, and I've got another one that I made from like books and stuff like that. I've got a series of random cubes that I made that, I, I mean, I'm not putting them on a shelf anywhere. I'm not going to share them to anywhere. They're not pretty. They're not something that you, you'd want in your home. I think that's one of the things about conceptual art. It's, it, there's that, that one, that phrase that everyone says, art should um, comfort the disturbed and disturb the comforters. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's kind of conceptual art. That's what it does. It just it upsets people and um, or it makes them think. And I think that's great. I think art should make you think, but you don't really want it in your home. And I think that's it. Like, what am I left with after art college? I did a, for my master's, I did a massive installation, um, which is based, I mean, not based on Cornelia Parker at all, but um, in terms of suspension, because I did a suspended uh, piece that's mm-hmm. kind of the closest <laughs> not comparing myself to Cornelia Parker she's incredible her exploding shed like she had a shed exploded by the army she got the army to blow up a shed that's a piece of art in itself really isn't it right <laughs> so she got the army to blow up a shed and then she suspended the pieces and I went to see it in Manchester and it's incredible and everywhere you and it moves like as you walk around it you can see this just this motion and the light it's lit from the inside so it looks kind of like it's permanently exploding a little bit like a TARDIS so yeah I mean you it's like again it's huge it, it would definitely fill most people's living room and you kind of think well that's lovely it's a brilliant piece of conceptual art but how accessible is it mm. you know and then there's like I don't really want to talk about the YBAs because I just don't have time for them um <laughs> at all it's, it makes me sound really scathing it's just I don't I don't I fundamentally don't really have time. I think Emin's bed got a lot of bad press for the actual concept that is behind it. And I think the concept is fascinating. Um, I do too. But realistically, I think the fact that she's now selling like air cups with like a scribble on them. Um, is less that impressive. Means that she's, yes. Yeah. She's moved beyond what her work was at that point. That's that. And Hurst is Damien Hurst. <laughs> so that's that for me on that subject um but there are some phenomenal artists out there like working and and doing different things and like you know um there's video video installation artwork that's just fascinating now like sam taylor wood is producing some amazing stuff Cordelia parkester obviously um doing like running over a brass band worth of instruments with a steamroller and then hanging them in a museum and there's just amazing conceptual stuff out there that i think is really really interesting but it's contemporary art. It um, doesn't technically have an era yet, I don't think. Not that I can find at any rate. So it's an era still because looking for its still, name. Yeah, well, we're still in it, you know, and I think that's the thing. If you think about these these eras that I've gone through today, they're like 300 years, some of them. Mm. Um, and then 
the, the closer we get to the modern day, we've tried to trim things down and we're getting into like a couple of decades here and there mm-hmm. um, or a hundred years. And I think, you know, right now we're, we're still kind of, we're post postmodernist. What are we? I don't actually know. I'm afraid. Which is I don't know the answer to that question. Please feel free to tell me if anyone doesn't. But yeah, so that's just a few, few, few bits and pieces of basically this is what art is over the past millennium ish. Half millennium. That was really impressive. That. So yeah. I did spend a really long time at art school. I, <laughs> I should probably know more than I do, actually. Really, I should have spent more time in the library. Well, bearing in mind, we didn't but talk didn't. about doing this until yesterday. Um, <laughs> you, you have you have clearly brought most of that information up from the depths of your memories. So, no. Oh, that and also from the wonderful book, uh, Isms, Understanding Art by Stephen Little. So, yeah, a lot of it is out of my brain. Um, and quickly going, oh, who's that picture by? I remember this and... And checking things out but yeah art's great i love it i'm a big art nerd it shows <laughs> but the same skills that like the same skills hmm. the same things that you learn at art school in order to like appreciate art and in inverted commas and like doing the inverted commas with my hand the air which you can't see yeah. the radio, gold. radio gold. always you know the same stuff is like how you kind of come to appreciate comics it really is like hmm. how you kind of look at you look at a series of, you look at the way something tracks uh, on a page, you look at the way something's put together and the way that like someone's drawn an incredible background and like then they've, they've put like a, a figure huge in the foreground. All of that stuff is just like, it's just, it's understanding and, uh, and doing art history. It's the same thing. It's just like, so if you can appreciate a comic, you can completely, don't feel like galleries and museums aren't for you like they totally are go look at some stuff it's awesome yeah um, and, and equally everyone can appreciate it very much equally if you are somebody who appreciates great art if you consider yourself an art lover comics may well be more for you than you think absolutely absolutely because like oh god i, I just look at some of the the ways people put art, art together in comics and you just think god how how did you even think to do that like mm. it's it's phenomenal like yeah, no, I just, I can't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I could, I, I'm not going to, but I could now rattle off a, a couple of dozen artists who, had they chosen to go into more conventional art, dealery art, could be raking the money in. Bear in mind, though, Babs Tarr, her, her background before she became an illustrator, before she went to college to become an illustrator, she was painting oil paintings. That's what she was doing. Like, her background is actually in portraiture oil painting portraiture that's what she did through high school to make money in high school i mean just ridiculously talented incredible but yeah so you know there are people out there that have got those skills that have then chosen to go in a different direction so yeah there's there's a lot out there that is is um is led by or guided by fine art sure well and i mean if you um if you look at the work of alex ross i mean he is very much almost a renaissance style of painter don't mean renaissance do i uh, i mean baroque i mean sort of vermeer all right okay in that he, in that he goes it, it's a, it's a slightly exaggerated realism but it is a very clearly a realism that he's going for he uses a oh, right of, yeah he uses a hell of a uh, lot of photo reference oh yeah totally uh, to, i'm, I'm to, looking at it right now just so that i can uh, to yeah. the detriment of his storytelling i would argue but that's just me <laughs> yeah there is definitely um there is definitely that classicism about that. I mean, especially if you just get really into the comic side of it. If you think about what the the classicists, various and neoclassicists were doing, they were looking at heroes of history 
and they were yeah. creating pictures and depictions of these incredible people doing incredible things. So yeah, absolutely, you can see that in Alex Ross's work. He's you know he's got these these titans, and they're just different titans. You know, that's that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I think the the, the parallel is clearly there. It's clearly there. Oh. Absolutely, hundred percent. Mythology—it's just modern mythology, realistically, isn't it? Comic books. If you, if you, you know, the classicists are the perfect people to compare it with, and I mean, to a degree, um, the uh, uh, pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, because of course, you know, anyone that's working with something that's realistic or naturalistic is going to have that sort of um, mm-hmm. that focus. But yeah, I mean, the idea of like painting these uh, over-large heroes um, very, very definitely is 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 harkening back to either yeah the either the the Renaissance classicists or um, then the, the neoclassicists in the Baroque period. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So there. Yeah. Well, do you know what? We're coming up to about an hour and a half. Possibly. We had so many interruptions. I've got no idea how long this has actually been going on for. Uh, thank you very much for your bearance. Um, listeners at home, we edited all of that out. Yeah. Um, but thank you, Hat, for sharing with us your geeky passion for... I really hope it wasn't too boring. Very nice. It wasn't boring at all. It really wasn't <laughs> boring at all. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to do this little sort of series within the series is that when people are passionate about a thing, listening to them talk about it is never boring. I... Theoretically. <laughs> You've got to hope. Uh, I certainly wasn't bored. I think, I've, I think I've learned something. So thank you very, very much. Oh, um, anytime. And... Um, We'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up there, I guess. Okie dokie. I would just like to say to anybody out there that's vaguely interested in getting into uh, fine art, there are so many online exhibitions. I will send Reggie all of the links. Um, you can go and look around lots and lots of different museums. So you can kind of have a look at stuff and you can go, oh, yeah, that does look like a comic, um, as long as it's not Lichtenstein. Yeah, don't look, don't, um, don't look at Lichtenstein. Give him no credit for anything. Yeah, um, so, yeah, have a look and, like, you might find an exciting new passion. You might just. Yep. Okay, thanks, Hat. Take care. No worries. Okay, that is it. Thank you for your kind attention. We hope you enjoyed. If you want more details about anything discussed, please, please, and I really do mean this, please go and check out the show notes. They are the most comprehensive show notes I have ever written for any episode of anything. Everything we talked about is in there. We've got videos, we've got links to all kinds of artwork and to galleries. It's probably, it would probably count almost genuinely, I'm almost not even joking, it would probably count as a crash course into art, generally. Uh, none None of the clever stuff is me. All I did was find the links and do some hyperlinky stuff. But there's an awful lot there. It should keep you entertained for quite a while. So uh, go check out www.destinationvenus.co.uk. Click on the blog button at the top right of the of the, uh, of the screen and um, search for the episode called Art Rant. And uh, also, while you're there, you might also want to check out the Destination Venus Lockdown Comics Challenge which has its own page and everything. Just click on Comics Contest, also at the top right-hand side of your screen. Okay, that's it from me. Uh, We will be back very soon, but until we are, be kind to yourself, be kind to everybody else, stay at home if you possibly can, keep yourself safe, wash your hands, don't touch your face, and we'll see you soon.
Bye. Thank you for listening to the Geeks at the Gate podcast. us on Facebook at facebook.com slash geeks at the gate or contact us on Twitter at geeks at the gates or contact us by email on mail for geeks at the gates at gmail.com that is the number four not the word geeks at the gates is a production of Venus Rising Media and is proudly made in Yorkshire